Welcome to another episode of the Sports Mecca Podcast with my colleague Sam Hengeli. I'm your host, Stephen Abramo. Today, we have the great privilege to talk to former Kansas basketball walk-on, Matt Kleinman. Matt, thank you for taking the time to, to come on. And uh, we've had we've had several uh, Kansas uh, Kansas Jayhawk connections. We talked to uh, Mario Little, who played from 2009 to 2011 with the Jayhawks. We talked to him back in September. Some updates about the Kansas season with uh, the KC star beat reporter Jesse Newell. And now you're going to be added to the list of you know former Kansas Jayhawks that have been able to you know share their stories um, off the court and as well as uh, on the court. But like I said, I'm Stephen Abramo. Sam, if you want to introduce yourself. I'm uh, Sam Angeli, a current student at Poirier State University. And uh, Matt, we actually had an encounter many years ago. I remember you were at, you were working the uh, Bob Chipman basketball camp. I was just a camper. And I, think, <laughs> I think I have a uh, old picture of uh, you signing my shirt. It's somewhere in the archives, I think, back home. So I'll have to find it. <laughs> I, I need you to confirm this too, Matt. Um, my sister used to work at AMC. Uh, AMC back when you when she was in high school and college. She's about the same age as you. Um, but she always she always would tell me after she got off, she'd see you playing Dance Dance Revolution. Can I uh, get that confirmed? <laughs> at AMC? Yeah. Oh man, I I, I don't know. The, I used to. Uh, I know I did a couple times with Julian Wright. Probably a couple times. He was a, a fiend for that kind of stuff. But I, I'm trying to think of where I would have done it. I, I grew up over at uh, over in the Blue Valley Schools area in Overland Park, so I, I would have probably been at the uh, AMC Town Center 20 growing up as a kid. But I don't know. I don't know if they had a dance dance revolution there. So no, I do remember doing those though. But it was with uh, Julian Wright. I think we they, the team used to take us out to David Buster's. So yeah, <laughs> I remember, yeah, I remember. Yeah, I remember. I was at a uh, book signing with Jason King and Devontae Graham was there, and I was kind of talking about do a little bit and talking about how you'd play the Dance Dance Revolution, and my Devontae Graham was like, "Oh, Matt was a dancer." <laughs> no, I was not. I, I, I as you'll, there's a recurring theme here as a as, as somebody that played for KU. I, I, I was not good at any of those things. I just tried. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. This podcast would kind of start off with just kind of like a an overview, Matt, of kind of what you're doing right now, and then we'll kind of carry into your Candace playing career um, several years ago, and you can kind of talk about some things that you remember when you were playing in Lawrence. But just a couple of things I want to ask you, just um, what, you're, what you're doing right now. Um, so you're a research assistant. Correct at the Children's Mercy at Children's Mercy Hospital Center for like weight management research, and then um, you're currently a co-founder and co-director of like the Dot Agency. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Sam and I are pretty in- interested in kind of just giving if you want to give us an update about what's been going on with that and what your roles are in those uh, positions. Sure, and for me, it kind of started back. Um, Back in my days at KU, in my playing days, because I always wanted to design sports stadiums. Because you know, here I am as a, as a I, I had gotten recruited by a few different schools, and in high school I was really into art. And a art teacher told me one day, that, "Matt, you're you're not good enough to be an artist." 
but you have a you have a very technical analytical mind. Maybe you should get into architecture. Got a scholarship offer from one school, but KU kind of ended up being where I wanted to be in the end. Um, looked at a few other schools, but KU had an architecture program. So I, I I was a dual enrolled art and architecture student for my first semester at KU. My grades are terrible because it's just too much to pull off and basketball. But I stuck it out with the architecture degree. And while I was there, like we would go to all these arenas, and um, we I had a, a guy named I think it was West Santee or Earl Santee was a big time architect, and he was designing the new Yankee Stadium. And I gave him tickets to a game just to kind of get to know him a little better. And eventually got an internship, you know, with a, uh, a firm called Populous in Kansas City because of the Coffin Stadium because Arrowhead has the best sports architects in the country. There's like three or four firms in Kansas City that design all the Super Bowl stadiums. They design all the World Cup Olympic stadiums. And so I thought that was my future. Like I wanted to be a architect that designed stadiums. And I thought, who better to do that but a KU Jayhawk who played in a bunch of them around the country. And it wasn't until I went to graduate school, um, because I kind of graduated in 2009 into the recession when no architects were getting hired. Uh, and I realized that when you talk to neighborhoods where stadiums would usually be proposed to be built, they didn't want to see their neighborhood torn down with a quarter billion dollars in residence taxes. They wanted to see that money spent on grocery stores, on sidewalks, on playgrounds where their kids could play safely. And so it took me a few years to get to that point, but eventually, uh, I worked as an architect for a number of years. Um, I got to travel the world after KU, um, so I got to see a lot of different things. But I worked as an architect back in Kansas City, and that kind of feeling of just not wanting to tear down neighborhoods and instead wanting to work for neighborhoods kept up with me until I had an opportunity to start teaching at KU. And so while I was teaching at KU, we founded this little thing called Dot Agency, which is kind of a community design center for Wyandotte County. So we work with residents in Wyandotte County, Kansas, um, and it has some of the worst worst health disparities in the entire state. You know, there, there's all these kind of rankings and Wyandotte County consistently ranks last. But what we discovered is that there's not any shortage of people trying to do the right thing. And community groups are constantly organizing to build sidewalks, to restore their parks, to build grocery stores. And so we started basically using our uh, academic platform to bring design to community groups who could probably not otherwise afford it and stick it out the long term. So we've uh, built a mobile grocery store that's uh, currently giving out about 120 boxes of food a day during the pandemic. We've built um, park stations. We've built trail signs. We've tried to do whatever our community partners throughout the Northeast area of Wyandotte County ask us to do. And sometimes it's just to be an advocate. And sometimes that's for me as a PhD student now, I'm a PhD candidate, uh, it's to bring research. So uh, if there's a policy that's about to go into effect and it's going to, um, you know, have a negative impact on the health of the community, you know, standing up to say, hey, could we do it a little differently? Here's a different way of doing it. Let's listen to the, what the community wants. We'll design it or we'll draw it or we'll research it and then present that back with like a little bit more of a, it has a little bit more weight when it's packaged in a way that is like, you know, all the skills of an architect I still use. Um, but now I do it for Children's Mercy. And it's about what, what we call is going upstream. So rather than waiting for a kid to come to Children's Mercy sick or with obesity problems, it's about building an environment or a neighborhood so that kid doesn't get sick in the first place. And so a lot of the work that I do now is a direct extension of what I saw playing at KU, is that there are neighborhoods that, you know, 
be torn down or displaced for stadiums. And instead, let's let's see what those neighborhoods want before we get to that point, mm-hmm. and let's help you know kids be healthy. Um, I know when I was at KU, we used to do a lot of Special Olympics stuff every winter break, and it, and you know you, you work with these community groups, and you think, wow, that's so cool. Um, but now you know I get to work with them pretty much every day. That's my job. So it's an interesting experience to kind of come full circle and try to have a positive impact on the world outside of sports. But it's a it's a neat experience to be in that uh, kind of community based design approach that we're doing. Very very cool. Um, a little bit of question, a little bit kind of like an architect way. What was like your favorite arena to play in besides Allen Fields? And what was like your <laughs> least favorite? Like talk about like features, I guess, and stuff that you saw. Oh man, I, I'll, I'll tell you the, the least favorite one first because I got in trouble. <laughs> so I had an interview. Uh, There's a guy, Nate Mast, pretty sure. It's been you know 10, 15 years for a lot of these names, but Nate, Nate was a manager who came over from. Illinois. He had been with Self before, and then he joined KU as a grad assistant. And so Nate uh, was this really, you know, kind of just go getter kind of guy. He was awesome, um, but he was also trained as an architect at Illinois. So I, I had a mentor to kind of talk to, and so he and I went to Gould Evans, which is a local firm, and um, we we kind of had a joint interview. They kind of brought both of the KU architects in, KU basketball player architects to meet, and they asked us together, what's your worst, best and worst stadium? Asked the same question. And I told them the worst stadium was Rupp Arena. Ah. Because, get this, Rupp Arena, it, it, it's a maze. It is a terrible maze of the locker rooms. The, the, the team got lost. Our first trip to Rupp Arena, where we, gosh, we, we had like, the game ended with like Alex Delindo, Christian Moody. Like we were decimated. Mike Lee, I think, like hit a winning basket. Like our team was we should not have won that game. It was maybe the worst uh, <laughs> compared to what the starters should have done. It was it was the worst five on the court you could have ever asked for in a Bill Self era in terms of like expectations. So we had like good guys, but these are not the guys you would put on the court to win a game at Rep Arena. But when we arrived at the arena, we got lost as a team multiple times trying to find the locker room. And I told that story and Gould Evans looked at me and he goes, okay, yeah, we designed that. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So I did not get a job with Gould Evans. I apologize to Gould Evans. It it is a beautiful building from the outside, but man, it is a pain in the butt to find anything on the inside. Um, In terms of the best arenas, this is going to get me in trouble, but my my wife is a Missouri Tiger, so she'll appreciate this. Uh, I think think Mizzou Arena, I'll I'll have some fun with it and call it Page Sports Arena. But Page Sports Arena, when it was built, uh, was done by some friends of mine over at HOK uh, 360 Sport. They did a great job, and 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 it's it's not nearly as good as Allen Fieldhouse, but it does something that Allen Fieldhouse does, which is rare is bring in natural light. And whenever you have natural light in an arena, it just changes the mood right. and it makes it feel like a special place. And I really appreciated that they did that. It was really cool to see. One of the greatest arenas we ever went to was Gallagher Iba. And if, if you are a basketball fan and you've not been to a game at Gallagher Iba, it is an, it is unbelievable. We, we used to call it like a waterfall of sound because they, they had the old arena, then they took the roof off and they like went straight vertical for the rafters. Mm-hmm. So the sound just cascades down on and when we would play of course they'd want to beat coach self and the noise there was just deafening it was the hardest i think arena we would ever play in on a consistent basis because just the acoustics worked out that way but but when i worked uh, as an intern for one of the firms um, i actually got to help design auburn's arena we were a part of a design team that we auburn had one of those big municipal arenas that you sometimes see from like the 70s missouri's old arena was like this 
And what happens is the seating is so far from the court that you you kind of feel like you're in like a it's a, it's just like a football arena. It's it's the same stuff that happens in the NCAA tournament when you, the when the crowd is too far from the court, it feels weird, and you get like depth perception issues, like because the sight lines are just mm-hmm. it's a weird experience. And we designed the Auburn Arena. I was on the team that did that um, as a summer intern, where we overlaid the Cameron Duke Cameron Indoor Arena as a cross section. So if you cut the building in half, you kind of look at it from the side and the furthest seat at duke camera was closer than the closest seat at auburn's current arena and so we proposed a really tight bowl and uh it was a cool design but the funny thing about it was is the only way we were able to get it done is we had a good install football booster tailgating boxes in the basketball arena <laughs> across the parking lot from the football field which helped pay for the basketball arena to get built but you know now they got bruce pearl and they're doing all right but it's cool to know that like i have a pretty, i was giving them design advice like how do you deal with the showers like how do you deal with um you know the locker room environment because as somebody who's been in that for a long long time i could kind of give them some very uh personal perspectives on how to make it pleasant for a basketball team right when you mentioned about like how the site lines can be bad for some of these like in the final fours and these football arenas uh when the final four uh was in 2008 i think that was actually like the last time that a a final four wasn't held in a football stadium but after your playing days at kansas did you ever have the opportunity to go to a final four and and see like just the weird sight lines or were you could you just see it from a tv is that the best you could do well I was going to go, I think it was 2000, was it 2012? They went to the Final Four again, and that was the year with like Anthony Davis versus Jeff Lindy. Um, and I remember Christian Moody, Steve Vincent, and I were going to like drive all night, find a hostel, go to the game because we could get free tickets for each of us individually as former players and like watch the games. And it just, it was kind of a, I was, I was kind of like, I'm getting a little old for this. This is kind of a road trip feeling. I'm not, I'm not going to make the trip with y'all. But no, I, I've not been to a Final Four since then. Uh, I do, I remember like the, the way they set up uh, the San Antonio Stadium was they, they, they had bleachers brought in in the middle of the court. And so they pulled them all the way up. And it actually worked really well because I think that, that kind of provided a more of a typical collegiate as- right. atmosphere. But yeah, we played, I mean, we played in, um, I was in Detroit when we played, yeah. uh, who was the, it was Davidson was the final, but before that, or somebody else, Villanova. Um, yeah, Villanova. And I, I mean, that was an incredible experience. But it's a different atmosphere. There's like a, it's like a deafening. Like you can't quite hear stuff, and then you can't see like the depth perception because these basketball goals are clear. And it always felt strange. Like you know, a stiff breeze in the arena. All of a sudden, you can throw the ball. You know, like it's a weird experience um, to be in these arenas. And I get it why they do it. It's great television. But it is a ask any player, and it's like, oh yeah, that was weird. The first time I had to like step up onto the court four feet above where I was sitting on the sidelines. Is there is it is there such a thing as like because a lot of people fans like ourselves or just college basketball junkies will say like, oh well, shooting in an arena is much more different. Sorry, shooting in a like a seventy five thousand seat stadium is different than shooting in like a twenty thousand seat stadium. Is is that like? <laughs> true like is the the shooting when you're I don't, I don't know why you guys are asking me because i can't shoot anyway so <laughs> no i mean i i think there is a yeah there's a difference you know it's like it's like being in a high school gym going to an allen Fieldhouse. that feels very different um, it, it's there is something that most people don't realize about college sports but it makes total sense when you think about it is we're creatures of habit 
Like if you have a certain routine, um, you know, you'll, you'll see it in the stories about Keith Langford and his uh, basketball shoes. Like he had a superstition about the shoes he wore. And if he didn't have a good first half, he changed his shoes. Now apply that to everything. Apply that to the way the water bottles are set up. Apply that to the way that, you know, guys would get gum from the managers while they were sitting on the bench. Like every little detail, if it felt weird, it kind of could like make you think, oh gosh, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. I'm going to screw up the game today. Because guys are creatures of habit. And so with arenas, it's the same thing. Like, you know, we we used to joke about the Colorado arena being thinner air, so that's why I was able to dunk a little bit better during warmups <laughs> because they'd give me they'd give me some crap for uh, hey Matt's Matt's bouncy today he's got he's got some pops it must be that thin air that makes him jump higher we we, we would pay attention to stuff like that um, the one thing that people and I I say this and people think I'm full of it but I think it's true um, the one thing that you'll never see talked about is the the newness of basketball rims and the difference of different teams with different basketball contracts. So you, you would think that every basketball is the same and every rim is the same. And they're very much different from team to team, from conference to conference. And so I know it's like in the Big 12, almost everybody uses a Spalding basketball or the Wilson basketball. But then like K-State has the Rock, which is a very different grade. It's slick. It's it's a, it's a tough basketball to shoot with if you don't practice with it a lot because it's very hard and hard to grip. Um, and different teams, you know, do that because they can. But imagine like you're playing a, you know, college sports game and you're scoring 20 points a game and now you go in a different arena. The rims are stiff because they just installed new ones and the ball is slick and you've never practiced with it more than a couple days. Now you're expected to continue scoring 20 points a game. And that that happens frequently, especially in, in like non-conference play. You you will run into schools that have a basketball brand or a, a brand new net and rim and you're just like, yeah, of course the ball is not going to fall in today because, you know, it, it's a, a game of inches and that stuff matters, but nobody ever sees it on TV. Nobody ever talks about it. But for the guys that are playing, that's exactly the experience they have in a lot of those settings. That's interesting. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, from from you know Sam and I's perspective, when we watch the games on TV, I mean, we we don't notice like ah, oh, the rims are stiff today, but. Uh, we, Sometimes uh, they literally are. <laughs> we, uh, we, I don't think we've ever thought about like the different ball texture. Uh, mm. Sam, I know you kind of wanted to like get into Matt, like when he first came into Kansas and like how he started off as a walk on. Sam, do you have a couple questions for him? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so you came on as a walk on at KU. Um, talk about like some of the things that happened as a walk on. Um, like, like, do you guys do like a lot more of the scouting reports and uh, how critical are they to uh, the success of, of the uh, KU teams? Yeah, I mean, my, my experience even becoming a walk on at KU is kind of interesting because generally there's there's two types of walk ons. There is walk ons that join the team through tryouts, which is kind of a traditional way of doing it but with schools like kansas there's what's called preferred walk-ons and i was a preferred walk-on um connor Tehan was a preferred walk-on whereas uh brad witherspoon was a walk-on through tryouts jordan juniman was a walk-on through tryouts and the difference is that preferred walk-ons are generally like low d1 players or d2 players who because they could contribute something they were on the radar of the coaches but the coach is like yeah we're not gonna give you a scholarship right now but then you still are good enough to make us better and that's what i signed up for i i had coming out of high school like i was a you know i'm a big slow six foot nine like power forward like the game has evolved so far beyond where i would be you know even remotely successful you know those guys these days are much more bouncy and they can shoot much better but i was kind of an old school old school player like get me in a pickup game i'm terrible but if you got a routine where i can set screens box out rebound defend and you know foul the heck out of the guy i'm all right and 
I could do that. And that was what got me. I got a scholarship offer to the University of Pacific. And I was looking at uh, Stanford, USF, South Florida, UNC Greensboro. Those were kind of like my four schools. And Stanford was way out of my league. But that was like a had been talking to their coaches and went on a visit. But Pacific was the offer. And then out of the blue, I got a call from uh, uh, Joe Holiday. Uh, Roy's old assistant and I had been going to these KU basketball camps like every other year even through high school when it didn't make sense for me to go I just went because I wanted to you know play with like Wayne Simeon and Aaron Miles and Drew Good and I wanted like you know hang out with them so you get a play every now and then on the summer camp on the nights after the camp was over and so KU coaches remembered me but now they're at North Carolina so they called me up and said hey Matt would you like to walk on it was Jared Hass Jared Hass called me and I remember thinking like well what does that even mean and they explained to me what a preferred walk-on was and they said remember you're a good kid you'll keep our grades up you'll be somebody to beat up against with our you know Sean May and you know, Tyler Hansborough was eventually going to be there. Like, we want you to come to North Carolina. We're just, we're just not going to pay for your scholarship. Like, you just got to walk on. Um, and I looked at it and I was like, man, that'd be awesome. And my brother was like, you should go. Like, don't go to Pacific. You'll, you'll get to hang out with Michael Jordan and celebrate a national championship every couple of years. And I thought about it, and then I realized, oh shoot, I got to pay out of state tuition. <laughs> so I, I, that was the, that was the reason I didn't go to North Carolina because I was really excited about it for about a week, and then I realized out of state tuition is just not going to cut it. Like. I, I can't afford that. My parents, I'm not going to put them through that. That's just not right. So I said no, and I was getting ready to sign the Pacific a week later, and then uh, I got a call from Tim Jankovic. And Jankovic at KU said, hey, we're the new coaching staff. We've heard you're a good kid. Would you like to walk on? And it was the same kind of deal. And so I said, yeah, that's, you know, in-state tuition, I can handle that. So for me as a walk-on, initially, I went from, like, mid-level, okay high school. Like, I played with guys that went to Yale. I played with guys that went to William & Mary. Um, like, we were, like, that, like, level basketball in the Blue Valley area. And I was okay. I wasn't great by any stretch of the imagination, even at the high school level. I was, like, an okay player. And so for me to go from okay in Blue Valley area to uh, playing with, you know, the, the front runners for the national champions, I was way out of my league. And what I appreciated was, as a walk-on, they, they don't treat you any different. Like, they, you're a part of the team. And for better or worse, because sometimes the walk-ons are not the best players of the team. So you kind of, you know, you have to be willing to tolerate the fact that every now and then I'm going to foul Wayne Simeon hard enough that he falls on his ass. And if he gets hurt because a walk-on is too stupid to not foul him and he jumped up to dunk the ball on him. <laughs> There's a level of, uh, you're a part of the team, but don't screw this up. <laughs> so we, we, you know, the red team is what you were talking about. People don't realize it, but the way self runs this practice, this coach does is the blue team and red team and blue team is your starters and he'll mix and match he'll you know he'll get like the best eight guys on the squad on the blue team and then every red shirt every walk on every freshman that's not getting a lot of minutes that year is the red team and the red team is like a consistent five or six and when i was on the red team my first few years we had danny manning so we were really good but our red team was a scout team it was the team that guys went against every day and so like blue team guys they get you know they get subs they get water you know they'd be pushing as hard as they can and they'd be living up to coaches expectations for the red team it was tim jankovich or curtis townsend telling us you know I, I can't repeat what they would say but it'd be very it'd be very playful every now and then cursing us out 
like what the hell are you doing like go go get the rebound go get like what do you take the shot and, and but what was fun was that the red team never would get any of the glory but every now and then and you can ask anybody on the team every now and then red team would kick some ass and we would have days where red team could not be beat you know when we had guys like jeremy case hitting threes from you know yeah. steph curry range we would have days where we would just dominate and they would be few and far between but when we did uh the blue team knew about it and coach self would run them and just get after them like what the hell are you doing losing to matt like why did matt score like what the hell is going on sasha like it was that it was that kind of feeling and so we would live for that like that was our, our every day we showed up to practice our goal was to kick ass and we usually got our asses handed to us um but when we did it when we when we did well it was it was pretty fun and we'd get back in the locker room and let them know and then they'd say to you know y'all ain't playing shut up <laughs> there was always a sort of a friendly rivalry, friendly rivalry, but the red team always stuck together. And, you know, every now and then, I think my last year, our red team was NBA caliber. Like we had Jeff Whitley, Travis Relaford, Mario Little. Like we had guys who played in the league on our red team. And it was just fun to have like no conscience. Nothing you can do is going to be wrong. Like shoot it. Don't worry about it. Like, you can foul as much as you want. Just give it to the blue team. Give them as much of a competition as you can. And we, there were some years where, like, guys will tell you, the red team was better than the blue team because of who was redshirted or because of who was, you know, maybe not playing because they were new to the team or they just transferred in or whatever. But it, it was a, it was a cool experience as a walk on to be a part of that. I, my first year, though, I was way in over my head. But by my fifth year, I mean, I was, I remember having the Morris twins coming in as freshmen, and I was oh, not man. better than them, but I started ahead of them one game. I think it was their Texas or yeah, I got I got the nod to start one game that was not a senior night game, and that was like my best moment. And the only reason Coach Self started me was to send a message to the twins because I had been kicking their ass in practice for like a whole week, and that was rare, but it happened. And so because I was doing a better job, and they were kind of messing around, I said, "All right, fine, Matt, you start." Now, of course, everybody knows that I was not going to do anything. So I get pulled two minutes into the game and I don't go back in. So like, probably, I don't know if I got back in the game, but it was a message that, hey, Matt earned it. He played his ass off and he's better than these two freshmen who are now still in the NBA, you know, making lots of money, doing really well for themselves. Um, but back then, like a fifth year redshirt walk on, you, you get that kind of respect from your teammates, even though all I could do is foul and screen and rebound and box out and run the plays and not, not turn it over. That's pretty much all they ask of you. So so uh, during your uh, five-year uh, time at KU, who would you have said that, that was the hardest player to guard in practice? Yeah, that's a good question. It depends. I mean, it, it really depends. I think um, different players brought different things. If I had to pick one, I think it would have been Sasha. Sasha and I were roommates. Sasha get mean <laughs> and I, I say this lovingly because i could get mean too but sasha had elbows and he was pure muscle and if you got on sasha's bad side during a practice like, like he would use those elbows and he would be aggressive and he was like a machine like we literally thought of him as a machine he had to be like one percent body fat <laughs> um and he could just if he really got angry he could dominate in, in a way that nobody else could i mean guys like darnell um they, they were hot like they'd get hot they'd get on a roll you know wayne was always a pro you know he could just hit every shot and you can't really stop him um but i remember brandon rush told me this once i asked him um after he'd been in the league for a couple of years and we were back in the locker room after a game when we were both back in town and i, I 
just generally was like, you know, who's a harder play for you? Because he just played against Kobe and LeBron in like, in like the last couple of weeks and I'd seen him play on, on TV. And I said, you know, who's harder for you to guard? And he, he said the same thing I'm kind of saying now. He said LeBron by far. And he's like, you know, Kobe will light you up. Kobe will torch you. But LeBron will embarrass you. He will physically hurt you. And that's how I felt with Sasha. Like Sasha, Sasha could take you out. If he, if he got mad enough and he wanted to dunk on you, you were not going to uh, be able to get through his elbows to get to the ball. Wow. That's, I mean, I mean, you, and, you know, Matt, you played with a lot of really talented big men in your time. I mean, you can go down the line, Sasha, like you, like you mentioned, Sasha Khan, Darno Jackson, Darrell Arthur, Wayne uh, Simeon, I think was Wayne Simeon, Julian Wright, uh, the Morris twins, Cole, uh, Cole Aldridge, even. God, I mean, <sighs> <laughs> yeah, which you, you see when you get to that list is I was the worst of about a span of the best five years of big men. <laughs> it, was a, it was a good run. I got to be around some really good players. Yeah. I'm kind of curious, though, like, so you talked about, you know, Sam asked you about the hardest player he had to guard. Uh, kind of talk about, you know, you were part of the two, obviously, you were part of the 2008 team that won the national title. Uh, you kind of look through Bill Self's coaching career. The 2008 team was probably by far one of his most talented teams. I mean, he's had teams like 2011, you know, 2010, even last year's team that sadly didn't have a chance to play for a title. But the 2008 team, you know, won 37 games. Uh, I think only lost two conference, you know, three conference games. They started 20 and 0, you know, as a walk on to practice with the, with this, with these guys every day. Um, can you kind of tell us kind of what it was like throughout the season? You know, how, how good was that team just as at a glance and just any, any significant moments that stood out to you? Yeah. I mean, Part of the challenge is being transparent is like years go on, memories made. It, it's harder to recollect specific like game memories. What sticks out for me, and this is probably because I'm a walk on, I, I would I didn't have a lot of game memories, right? Like most of my memories were on the bench or you know getting like a couple minutes of mop up time because those are the chances I got to play. What sticks out to me was sort of the locker room culture and the the the, the spirit of the team in between games because that's the stuff I think that makes and breaks a good team. I know people like to think it's all on the court, but honestly, a lot of what sets the tone for the team is the summer. You'll hear guys talk about it all the time because if you have a good summer, you are uh, working out every day, so your your endurance is going to be built up. You're you're probably healing from any injuries that you didn't want to tell any of the public about the previous year because you know why would you want to talk about your injuries? You know you just got to take it and move on. Um, and if you have a healthy summer roster, it's competitive. So guys are getting better. And so like those types of things build up and that lets you go into the fall of boot camp time in shape. So you're not getting yelled at um, because you're slow or because you couldn't make, you know, your 20 and 20 time or your 30 and 30 time. That's a uh, down and back, down and back in 20 seconds or less. The 30 and 30s were uh, down, back, down, back down back three times in 33 seconds or less. We would run those at boot camp every year, um, 20 in a row, 30 in a row. And guys would, you know, if you were out of shape, you'd puke. 2008 year, everybody was in shape. I was the slowest guy on the team. I could do it, just barely, but I could do it. Like, we we had a great summer that turned into a great fall. And I think what most people don't understand about teams is that you can't isolate one year. Teams are generally about a two- to three-year experiment because that's how the coaches see it. The coaches see it as, we got this guy as a freshman. He's going to be with us two years. If he's great, he's gone after one. If he's good, he's gone after two. If he sticks around for all four years, we're going to be in trouble because we got somebody else in the pipeline coming up 
spectrum. So coaches generally see teams as two to three year experiments. That that sometimes explains why teams aren't doing as well if a guy too many guys leave early. And what we had in 2008 was a weird circumstance where Julian left, but Julian. He was kind of like, a, he was a mercurial talent, right? Like he was on and he was feeling good. He couldn't find anybody better. But if he felt bad, it was, he, he'd have a tough game. And, and that could like ripple out. And I think when he left, it kind of became the Brandon and Mario show. with a hell of a supporting cast. Brandon was not supposed to stick around. I, I think he was ready to go to the NBA. And I think it was his ACL he tore. Yeah. And so he, he came back for another year. And that doesn't happen that often. And so I think we had him back. We had a senior leadership. Because I, I came in with Russell and CJ and Alex and Sasha and Darnell. That was my freshman class. And Alex left after one year. We thought Russell was going to leave, but Russell decided to stick it out. And um, there, there's a great game when we played Kyle Lowry's Villanova at Villanova. We got snowed in after the game. We got beat by 30. Curtis Sumter, Villanova, just destroyed us. And Coach Selves tried to put Russell and Alex into the game for mop-up minutes at the end of the game. And they'd been in the doghouse for a couple of weeks, just as freshmen not really doing what they were supposed to do, I guess. And uh, Russell said, no, Coach, I'm good. I don't want to go in. <laughs> It was not a good experience for anybody that night. <laughs> we watched the game film twice in a row um, just to let it settle in. But, you know, this is not how KU basketball is supposed to be. Bucknell and Bradley and UCLA, like those experiences is what created the team that won it in 2008. Because no, nobody looks at that and goes, oh, like, yeah, 2008 was such a unique unicorn year. Well, no, it's because Russell and Darnell and Sasha and I had gone through heartbreak after heartbreak yeah. and, and Mario and Brandon uh, were there and then you brought Shady and uh, Sharon on and so like we had a team that had like kind of weathered the storm and stuck together um, surprisingly and so you had a deep bench you had a, a, a really star powered team and I think the thing that I'll never forget was uh, UCLA was the game that got us the year before we thought we were final four ready and then the year before, we just couldn't get past UCLA. And so when we beat Davidson, there was like this moment of elation on the court. We were just going nuts. We understood what it meant for Coach Self to get into a Final Four. We yeah. understood what it meant for KU to go to the Final Four. But we went back to the locker room. And, you know, you pop water bottles like they're champagne. Um, but I will never forget Darnell. Darnell, people don't know, he went through more adversity than I think anybody else on our team. He just had so many hits. He was you know, a family and, um, you know, he had a whole thing with a, a booster who wasn't a booster, but like helped his family out when he was in like the eighth grade. And that cost him like nine games of his career. Okay. You like, there's so many things he went through and he was like the heart and soul of our team. Once Julian left Darnell, I remember after the Davidson game kind of like in the locker room, we're all celebrating kind of basically told us to shut up, just like, shut up. Like this isn't what we're here for. Like, we're not here to go to the final four. We're here to win a national championship. And I think that immediately recentered everybody's perspective. Cause we're like, Oh, we, we, we got screwed on Bucknell. We got screwed up Bradley. We got like all of those experiences were painful to us. We, we, we still carried those like scars and we knew that if all we wanted to do was beat Davidson, that wouldn't be enough. So we went into the, the, the final weekend very focused in a way that I don't think we'd ever been before. But I think the whole turn, that whole postseason was very focused. And there were there were some moments where I can't repeat publicly, <laughs> uh, but there was there was some uh, college 
shenanigans that any college team could get into. And I remember Coach Self the very first week into the tournament basically said, none of that. Like, give me your undivided attention the next three weeks, and I promise you, you will never regret it. And I think that worked. I think our guys are just like, yeah, let's, let's for three weeks, let's stop messing around, and let's focus in on exactly what we have to do. And when we got to the last weekend, everybody wrote us off. They, they had every other team on the, the top you know, one, two, three in any order, but us. And so we kind of, I think we came in with a chip on our shoulder and we came in with a lot of experience and we came in with, a, I think, the right mixture of personalities in the locker room because of things like what Darnell was saying. We're not here to be, you know, just to show up. Like That's not going to be enough for us. So I, I think that played more of a role than people realize because that chemistry component can kind of set someone's mentality or maybe because of the like chemistry, guys aren't, you know, worried about their minutes as much. They're not worried about how many points they're going to score. They're going to pass the ball when the guy's open to get him that extra pass, to get him that extra shot because he's on fire and he can hit that three. You trust that. You trust your teammates that way if you have a good chemistry. And we had a great chemistry. Yeah, definitely. I- that 07 08 team, I, I remember I watched the game. It was like, they were like interviewing students, like ask them who their favorite player on the team was. And it was always like a different answer. It was like everybody was, it was that team was just so balanced. That every, like the whole starting five, I think, averaged like 12 points a game, which is like extremely rare today in college basketball and just in sports in general to have a team that balanced. And that just chemistry was awesome. So what, what were, were there like any times during your time where in that, especially that 07, 08 season where like some people's like Brandon or Mario's ego got in the way a little bit and like maybe there were some struggles and like how were, you, were they able to like figure out how to put it aside so they can focus on the team goal? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if Brandon or Mario's ego ever got in the way. People don't realize Brandon was like the most like uh, he was if you haven't seen the movie One Night in Miami um, check it out it's on Amazon it's a great film but the Muhammad Ali character like this person is larger than life in some ways has this very unassuming like anything he says is usually a joke um, but it's unlike this like lighthearted, almost childlike in that to say that Brandon was childlike but it's just like a it was almost like an innocence like you, you kind of you try to get on Brandon and he kind of be like hey like, and then he, he kind of come back with something Brandon was the most unassuming guy like he he had all the star potential and he had all the kind of charisma but he was you know a great teammate he was nice unassuming um crack jokes friends with everybody you know guys could help that like he he kind of had that persona mario had a lot more like this is my team but he wasn't you know nobody really had an ego we had a a mix of guys I, i think part of it too was when we came in I say we, uh, the freshman class that I came in with, Russell, um, Sasha, Arnell, we were, I wouldn't say treated differently as freshmen, but we were not invited to be leaders in the team the same way we invited others. So our freshman year, it was this, it was this, uh, Keith Langford, Aaron Miles, Mike Lee, Wayne Simeon show. Our, our late night, <laughs> they, they brought out the national championship statue from 88 and had the players do like a, a marriage skit to kiss the statue and say, I do, you know, promise to win the next championship. <laughs> it was their team. And we were the freshmen and self was still a new coach. 
And so we were like the new coaches, new players. It did not lead to a lot of like, you know, inner locker room gel. It was kind of like, it was kind of like a feeling of, oh, who's this person that's coming to replace me? J.R. Giddens, like, left the team. But he looked around and saw guys that were coming, like, up to get his spot. Like, you know, he was a, he was a fun teammate to be around. But there was the kind of the old guard and the new guard. We remembered that. So when we became juniors and seniors, we, saw it as an opportunity to like build our legacy mm-hmm. and our legacy was hey mario you're fun to be around like you got this brandon you're a star player you got this like not to say you're you're too new like sharon sharon was the same way sharon came in and and, and sharon will tell you this he was a jerk <laughs> his first year he would do anything he could to get a rise at anybody and he and i used to have some battles that were fun today sharon's like probably my best friend of all the guys on the team just because um, he's such an incredible person. But I remember his freshman year, he was tough. I think there's something about the chemistry we had where guys would be like, yeah, let's, like, come on. Like, you know, you, you, you think you're going to stand out? No, like, this is a team effort. And the one thing um, I think that helped with that, we had, there would be a lot of conversations about this kind of stuff because everybody's always got one eye towards the NBA. Like, they want to be that guy. But we had a guy come in. I'll never forget this because it was so true for everybody in the room. And I think it hit hit home for a lot of the guys he was a scout for the Denver Nuggets and he just came in and gave us like a, a motivational kind of pep talk but he had this kind of storyline and it was um unpack your bags he himself did the numbers and it was like how many NBA draft picks are there okay you got 60 picks give or take well second you know round picks are not nearly as good as first round because they're not guaranteed money so let's cut those off there's 32 picks well how many of those picks well in each of the classes, freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and seniors, you got maybe four guys. That that right there, that's 16 players in the country who are not in this locker room, who are so good at their spot that they're going to get drafted. How many guys are coming from overseas? On average, about seven or eight. So now we're talking, how many spots are left? Ten? If you're not one of the best players in this locker room right now, you're not going to sniff the NBA first round. Like, unless you are the very best, baddest player in this room, you're not going to the league. And so what they told us which is accurate is unpack your bags get settled in buy into the team system do what coach asks you to do learn how to play defense and what self told us and which was true is if everybody bought it the pie would be big enough for all of us and i think that kind of carried itself through everybody on our team i think i did the math one time like i played with 16 or 17 guys that suited up to the league at one point or another on the 2018 we had about i think eight or nine even if they were there for a short time they made it and so i think that type of um team building is probably the success more than any one player, more than any one star-studded talent. And, and I remember this because uh, who's the guy who blew the kiss to LeBron James? Lance Stevenson. I remember Lance Stevenson coming on a recruiting visit, and we met his, him and his dad. He came to Coach Self's house. Nice guy. But you could tell he had this like star-powered ego behind him. Of course he did. He deserved it. He was excellent. He's an incredible NBA player. But I remember uh, Joe Dooley, when we asked when he committed, I think he went to like Cincinnati or somewhere. Yeah. And he committed some, when he committed somewhere else, we asked Joe Dooley, we're like, well, what happened? And um, he told us the story that Lance's dad kind of said something to the effect of like, like my son is better than anybody you got in your team. Kind of like that. I'm, I'm paraphrasing heavily here. But it's kind of like, my son is the star. If he's going to come here, he's going to be the star. And Joe Dooley's like, Hey, I got five guys that can beat you in one son. This <laughs> is like, I, I'll, I'll put my team of five guys on the court. Your son and any other four guys will beat them. And and that was the mentality we had: is that like, next man up. We got we got a deep enough roster. We we believe in the system. We're all on the same page. And that can beat Kevin Durant twice. That can beat Blake Griffin. That can beat 
the guys that are star powered. Wow. It, it takes that team effort. Wow. I just so just another tidbit about the 2008 season. Uh, there's that infamous Henry T's meeting that uh, some of the players <laughs> some of the players went went to Henry T's after like a lost Oklahoma State. Were you the one that set that up? I get credit for that all the time, and I'll be honest, this is one of those memories that I should have better memory of. I was probably just hungry, telling guys, like, hey, let's go eat. <laughs> and, and, and it was probably Henry T's because I used to, when you, when you get to a level of trust in the program, you're allowed to move off campus. If they don't trust you or you're young, you got to be on campus at the what used to be Jack Towers, now it's the other building. Um, so the managers can come get you out of your bed when you're late to practice. Like that's why they do it. Henry Tees was across the street from my apartment complex on Sixth Street, so I'm pretty sure that's why. <laughs> I, I said, "Hey guys, I'm hungry. Let's go get some food. Let's go to Henry Tees." But I, I do remember some of that night. It was just kind of like a. I, I think people have blown it up into this bigger thing. <laughs> but I remember sitting in the booth, just like, "Hey, let's get some chicken wings. Let's you know get some food. Okay, you know." And and I think it was kind of just like a heart to heart. It's just like, I feel this way about coach. Yeah, I feel this way about coach too. Yeah, screw coach. Let's go win. <laughs> uh, coach Self, I think, oftentimes liked to play the, the bully because he knew that, hey, you know, if you guys can buy into my system, great. But if you won't buy in, I'm going to make your life hell until you do buy in. And at least that way, you'll buy in together to, to prove me wrong. And, of course, that's like, you know, you know coaching 101. You, you find some common cause from the rallying around. Then they do what you want them to do. And then you say, hey, turn that against the next opponent. Um, I think we were all at that moment kind of frustrated with where we all were. And, you know, Lord knows I had nothing to do with performance on the court. <laughs> but, hey, but you, I think you, I get a lot – you, I get a lot of credit for that that event, and I, I really don't know how much that actually made a difference. <laughs> hey, you were pulling the strings. I'll 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 take credit where I can, but that that was um you know you got to give it to the guys that are actually on the court doing the work. Um, but it, you know it, I think the the things that I enjoyed the most were building the team and and a, and kind of creating a culture where we we did want to play well together, like you know. There's always going to be like it's like siblings, right? There's always going to be conflict in a team. There's there's more conflict in every team. People never realize it because you you're around each other twenty four seven. You know, imagine you know being in a room with other guys that are just like you and you're all competing for the same thing, and then you have to like go out and perform on national television all nights a week, and all the while you're taking college classes and trying to you know go to bars and get dates and have have a good time. Like there's bound to be conflict, and so I think managing conflict is a big part of the success of any team. And the way you do that is you have pretty good communication. And our our team, I thought, had really good communication. We we could talk to each other because I don't think, you know, we had, we had a senior class at 2018 who didn't care whether or not they got the credit. And you had a junior class who, frankly, were NBA ready. And you had a sophomore class who were willing to wait their turn because they knew that they'd get a shot at it too. And so, like, because of that, we were all able to kind of communicate, like, how we were doing and how we felt about things. And I think that's that's more rare than people realize because, you know, everybody's got a, their own agenda. They're not they're not always there for the team because, you know, you gotta got to make a living for yourself and your family. And, and I, I respect that. It's just we, we were fortunate to have the right mixture of guys who – cared enough about each other to, to put some of that aside and even then when you do it's still luck right like it's you know Mario's shot doesn't go in and the game's over and we're not talking about 2008 anymore like that's the kind of you know it's a lot of pressure and it's a lot of luck and if you get it all together you know great things can happen yeah um very true um so another, I guess we'll go back a year I guess so you guys lost to Oral Roberts in an early November game <laughs> 
This was quite oh. oh, Was this the angriest that you ever saw Bill Self during your time at KU? Because he definitely was not very happy about losing to his uh, first coaching job, I guess. Oh, God. I remember that game so clearly. Oh, so I, I had a, uh, I played my freshman year. We had this thing where, like, whenever I got in, I, if I shot the ball, I think I was like 100% on the, on from field, the field that year. Like, I only shot the ball like nine times. I didn't miss. And so there was this like rumor persona thing that is like, you know, like when Matt, whenever Matt played, they won the game. And the, the thing that people don't realize is whenever I played and we were winning, I shot the ball. And if we were losing, I didn't shoot. So <laughs> I somehow got associated with us winning. But the game that was the big exception to that rule was Oral Roberts. And we sucked. We were terrible. And I remember, God, it was like, I can't remember the guy's name, Vili, maybe? He had hit two three-pointers his entire career, or entire season, and he hit like four, or four for four, something like that. Just a guy, like, wasn't on our scouting report, like, didn't, we had never thought he would step back and hit four threes against us, or whatever it was. And they had another guy, the star player of their team, we used to call it Old Man Ball. But it was kind of like that kind of slow and, you know, pump fake here, spin move there, wait for you to jump, jump in there, get a foul, go to the free throw line. Like, they put me in to guard them because nobody else could. And they thought, well, hey, Matt's a slow, you know, <laughs> he's not going to jump. Um, and so they, they put me into the game thinking Matt can help out even just for a few minutes. And I think I picked up two quick fouls. I had one stop and I had one turnover and it always kind of bugged me because um, I was I was reversing the ball at the top of the key and I, I catch the pass from one side. I'm supposed to throw the ball and Sharon was supposed to zig when he zagged. He went the wrong direction and I threw it to where he was supposed to be because I was so scared to death. You know, I'm not expecting to get in the game in the first half, let alone on a team we're losing to and I can feel the pressure building. So I threw the pass and I threw it away and it got stolen and, you know, Coach Self ripped into me and I didn't play the rest of the game. Um, I was more, you know, Talk, talk about, you know, personas or personalities. I was more concerned about that one play than I was about losing the whole rounds. I knew that was a big deal, but I felt like that was my shot. Like, coach put me in. I'm a walk on. I'm in the first half and I threw the ball away. Like, I'm not going back in for another couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> but it was funny after we watched the game film, because of course, when you, when you lose, you watch lots of games. Um, Sharon and coach self were both like, Matt, that's our fault. Like, you did what you were supposed to do. <laughs> and I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> and, and I know that's terrible, but, like, that's the kind of stuff I was worried about as a walk-on because the pressure of, like, one pass, that's the only shot you got. Like, you don't go back in after that. But that was the most, I think, upset I've ever seen. Um, there were other times, you know, there, there are some comical ones that I'm not sure I can repeat for public <laughs> consumption. Um you could ask some guys. There, there, there may be uh, some footage of football practice for the basketball team. There's, uh, there's, there's a infamous practice where it's a lot, lot like football. Um, I remember one game. This one was pretty tame, but it was uh, my freshman year. I've never seen Coach Self mad. And people will say this. I don't know how true it is, but I think there's some truth to it. That Coach Self has gotten softer over the years. And I think a lot of that's guys just trying to like burnish their own legacies to say, well, I played for Coach Self when he was a lot harder on us. And now he's easy. I don't know if that's true or not. I, I honestly don't. And I will tell you, I've never seen Coach Self matter than watching game film one day after a loss. And, and, and what Self will do, and it's kind of brilliant coaching, I think, is if you won the game by two points and you should have lost, he would rip into you. If you won by 20, you should have won by 30. He was livid. But if you lost by 20, it's kind of like a, hey, we sucked. 
let, let's kind of regroup. Let, 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 let's get our confidence back. It's almost like let, it's almost like a reverse psychology. And we had one of those games my freshman year. And I remember we go in to watch film and everything is like, we're like, oh God, we're going to get destroyed. And Coach Self was like, no, you know, we're going to watch the film. We're not going to practice today. You guys got the day off, you know, rest up. And I'm like, what is this? And so we're watching film and uh, I think there is a, a, a specific play that Keith Langford, he probably didn't do something he should have done. And it was pretty routine. And so Coach Self kind of says something to the effect of, Keith, you see what you should have done there? You know, just being very gentle with him. And Keith disagreed. <laughs> Keith said, no, Coach, actually what I was trying to do was this. <laughs> and everything's fine and i remember coach just you know i think it, i think a couple of pieces of fruit got destroyed um <laughs> and uh we ended up practicing that day for three hours and came back and like to practice for three more <laughs> so uh there's, there's a limit on how many hours you can practice in a day and when coach was at his maddest he would do a three-hour practice session and then come right back at midnight to practice the next day technically for three more hours and so so you know that happened maybe once or twice in my career, but you know, those types of moments are few and far between. But it was, it was. Uh, I think people don't realize is, yeah, he he can get pretty heated. There's always sort of like a contextual thing that you know when he was angriest was not when people thought it was. It was you know sometimes it was because he was trying to. It was almost like somebody trying to pull the strings on it. Like you were trying to get more out of you. I'm gonna try to. I'm gonna try to get angry to get you to do something different. And then sometimes that wouldn't work. So then he'd switch gears and say, no, I'm going to calm down. I'm going to try to like let you figure this one out. I'm going to ignore you and see if you can like, that type of um, coaching, I think is part of what he does. It's not just play calling. And I, and I always thought that was really incredible. Just the, the way that that could elicit a response from us. And sometimes we were afraid of it. Like, don't know what coach is going to do today. And sometimes I think it was kind of a good motivator. It's like, oh man, coach is really mad at us. Yeah, we beat him by 20. We should beat him by 40. Of course, we need to practice hard today. Anyway, favorite bill sell moment my favorite one when he was like upset was after when they lost to tcu in 2013 and he like compared the game to like topeka ymca yeah and then and then the the one after they lost like by 30 kentucky he like drinks his water bottle he's like i was hoping that was vodka but no that was just water (laughs) i'll say this the the coaching staff prided itself on its sense of humor one of the things i think people don't understand when we had jankovic Pounds and um, Danny Manning and self together like that was it, it could be a stand-up comedy routine most nights like the the level of um, just humor that would permeate the locker room was it was always a joy to be a part of and you know we had our kind of collegial humor but they they cracked jokes with the best of them and um, I'll, I'll never forget as, as a walk on um, you don't give me any second chances and I got a minor in possession of alcohol celebrating my brother's upcoming wedding and i couldn't go with him to his bachelor party so he took me out to the wheel on 8 p.m on a sunday and i had a beer in my hand and a cop walks up and busts me for a minor in possession because he recognized me from the team and i was so devastated and i called coach self that night like in tears it's like 8 8 30 p.m on a sunday night like i'm having a beer with my brother and obviously that's illegal but i'm freaking out because I'm going to get kicked off the team. And so I call him up and he kind of like, okay, okay, you know. They never punished me. They let me live with the guilt and shame of them cracking jokes at my expense for the next five years. It was nonstop hazing. The, the best example is uh, when, you're, when you're on a team, there's always kind of an element of like team prayer. 
Uh, there's a team chaplain. Um, not everybody had, you know, it was not mandatory, but it was a thing that was there. And Wayne was a big part of that. You kind of graduate and guys move on. And so Steve Vincent and Christian Moody used to do it. Well, I started doing it on my like third or fourth year on the team where I was really good at like kind of doing a quick like, hey, you know, God, let's not get hurt today kind of prayer. And I remember doing it one time and Coach Jankovic looks over Coach Townsend and goes, look at this fucking felon. <laughs> <laughs> Just, just laid into me like this guy's never gonna run for senator. This guy's, this guy's never gonna, you know, like um, just things that had happened three years ago, and and the, the the sense of humor and the the kind of ability to just have a a sense of humor and joy about the fact that every day you got to go play a sport. You know, it, it was a, it was a privilege to be able to do that, but it's also like after a while you got to kind of keep yourself entertained. And I, I I always appreciated that about coach and the staff that they. They could uh, keep us on our toes with humor, and yes, you know, ask any walk-on out there the the level of jokes that you get, especially early in your career when you're kind of a new kid on the block. Um, Coach Townsend would go after Jordan Juneman, and it was one of the best. And Jordan was, you know, unbelievable about it. Like he would, he would kind of, you know, take it and he kind of get his own in. But um, I think like early on, guys would just they wouldn't know what to do because you've never been around people who were that funny and. They wouldn't do it at people's expense, but it was always kind of like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> I'll never forget. Uh, I think one day Tim Jankovic was so mad. He had me shoot left-handed hook shots. For, it was because I stole a pass on a walkthrough, which I was supposed to be a dummy defender. I wasn't supposed to do anything. I was supposed to stand there. I stole the pass, which is me just being a jerk. Um, and he had me shoot left-handed hook shots for the rest of practice for two hours. I shot left-handed hook shots. And I give credit to Coach Jankovic because of that. I got really good at doing that in games. But um, it was kind of just like they would, they would give us crap for dumb things. And I, I, I really think that type of chemistry as well works because, you know, people don't realize that the coaches, are the, the assistant coaches are a big reason why a lot of guys show up at school because the assistant coaches are the first point of contact with a player. And so if you have an assistant coach who can, you know, build a relationship and like coach self can kind of bring the hammer down and say, hey, you're not doing, you're not trying to hurt me. And he can do it in pretty tense, tense language. And then you need that assistant coach to come right behind him and say, you know, hey, you're okay. Like, get your head up. You got this. Um, that that type of experience, I think, was always huge. So even, even when Coach was bad, there would be kind of a good cop, bad cop, buddy routine where they, they would work with each other to kind of put the fear of God into you. Coach Self's really angry. And then all of a sudden, Coach Townsend's in your corner saying, hey, you got this. You just need to do a couple things differently. And I think that was pretty strategic on their part, too. To kind of get you to wake up because if guys were complacent, they wouldn't get it. They wouldn't. Yeah, absolutely. I love, that's why. That's why I guess Bill Self has won 14 consecutive Big 12 championships and uh, had uh, had uh, more Big 12 titles than our home bosses. Basically, what you said right there. Um, okay, so so border war. I guess some far showdown. Uh, what was it like going to play against Mizzou and Kansas State? Oh man, I mean those. Those games were, I think, like, they were different, you know? We, um, I was there back when the border war was still very much a thing. Um, I remember having to go outside in the bitter cold the night before a game because some Missouri fans snuck into the building to pull our fire alarm at 2 in the morning. Um, and these doors were locked. Like, they got in. Um, I remember going to Mizzou to play a game and seeing them with a bonfire with a uh, KU jersey being burned in effigy. Like, just, that was interesting. Uh, <laughs> uh, I remember 
case <laughs> one of my favorite things and i'll tell you a little side story before i get back to it but one of my favorite things about fans in college basketball was the crowds before the game and people don't realize this but when you're walking onto a court to play a game that's not the first time you've been on that court you've been on that court probably about three or four times already that day so you show up to the gym like four hours before tip-off and you immediately start warming up you start taking some shots, you get, you know, get loose, go back to the locker room, get ready, come back out, run a couple drills, go back in. Uh, now you're really getting close to game time. You go back out, you run your warm-ups, and then you go back in and you come back out for the game the, like the third or fourth time. But that second time you go out there, the crowd's there. They, they're ready for you. Like it's, it's a big-time game for them. And so when the crowd's in there, but it's just students, no other crowd. They can say whatever the heck they want to say to you. <laughs> it can get brutal, but sometimes it was hilarious, and that was like the stuff I remember. So, like, I'll, I'll just give you one side story. I remember uh, Jeff Hawkins, another dear, dear friend. I, Jeff, Jeff, and I, our families are close. Like, I, I love him to death. And Jeff and I were the first two on the court at Texas the game after he got busted for cutting in line at a McDonald's. <laughs> to grab somebody else's meal and he got like arrested for it. It was stupid or something. It was like a minor thing, but it was like, it was like a college kid thing to do. And so we walk onto the court and we're at half, we're right at half court. And it's just me and him, nobody else. And we're facing a wall of Texas fans. And all of a sudden, as soon as we cross half court, everyone pulls something out of their pockets. And it's a big, each, each person's got a McDonald's burger wrapper in unison. They go, da, 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 da. Wow. Oh my and, gosh. And I just felt, I, I remember falling over and cracking up, just tears in my eyes. And it was like that kind of stuff I, I thought was amazing. And so K State and Missouri, that too. But it was a little different. And so K State, I think, was always kind of like, it was like the little brother kind of thing. Like we actually had a good relationship with K State in some ways, like as, as players. You mentioned the Chipman camp. We used to coach Chipman camps together. Um, my best friend in high school, one of my best friends in high school, he was in my wedding. Uh, James Franklin walked on to K-State after spending a couple of years at Cali County uh, Community College playing ball. Played with Michael Beasley. I used to go to Manhattan to hang out with him and his teammates. I'd hang out with him and David Hoskins at like a 24-hour diner. Um, <laughs> we, we used to get uh, K-State players in to come hang out with us and party with us at KU. Like we had a decent relationship as players. Um, I don't think our fans felt that way, but we got to know each other and we, we, we'd spend time together. It, it was there was kind of a respect there. You, you didn't have that with the Missouri players quite as much. Hmm. So I remember at K State, you know, one game they had a uh, a giant photograph of Russell Robinson's head with like on an alien UFO shooting lasers out of his eyes at the nine eleven towers, and it was like so painfully like hilarious and like disrespectful and just inappropriate all at the same time, but. We go back to the locker room and Coach Self, you know, he would love this stuff. He goes, like, you got anything good for you, Russell? And everyone's just like, Coach, you got to see this. <laughs> it was just like, Russell's like, man, they really got me like that. <laughs> but um, Missouri was a different ball game altogether. And so, I, you know, my freshman year, um, I was not allowed to travel with the team because I registered in my freshman year. I could not travel with the team because the incident like puts limits on how many players can travel on away games. And if you're a redshirt, you're kind of like – the last guy to go. And so I couldn't travel, but I went on the Missouri game because it was close enough. I could just drive it myself. And so I sat behind the bench and I will never forget. There was a Mizzou fan who had a chicken, rubber chicken on a noose on a stick 
spinning in circles. He had a hat that said, burn Lawrence again. And the chicken kept swinging dangerously close to Wayne Simeon's father's face. And I don't know if y'all have seen Wayne's dad, but Wayne's dad is just as big as Wayne. And I'm pretty sure I remember him grabbing it like halfway through the game, and just tearing it out of his hands. Like, don't you dare. But like stuff like that, like there was a, there was an undercurrent of vitriol and hate that they had for us. And I'm pretty sure you ask Missouri players, you know, go, go ask a Kareem and, you know, ask some of those guys. They probably have the same story to tell about our fans. But, um, you know, I remember uh, just the way it always felt was such a heated thing. And even then, like, you know, uh, <laughs> talk about signs. Um, one of the funniest signs I've ever read was uh, Brandon used to get shit all the time from Missouri fans because he went to Mizzou and not went to KU and not Mizzou because his brother went to um, Kareem went to Missouri and Jerron would have gone to Kansas but there was a whole story there about why he didn't and went to UCLA instead so Brandon coming to KU is a big deal but Mizzou fans like to have some fun with them and there was one <laughs> the, the sign said Brandon could can't read good and they were just like making fun of his intelligence <laughs> he came back in the locker and was like man that's <laughs> <F> them <laughs> just like not not letting that get under his skin, but like the the way that they would try to get at us, um, it was it was you know it's one of those things only in college sports where you find fans that are that creative. Um, but you know there were other teams too. Iowa State had a heck of a fan base, um, and and the only story I can tell there that is probably the best of all these types of stories was um, Steve Vincent was one of the all-time great walk-ons at KU. People don't give Steve enough credit. Steve kind of set the tone for me and everybody that came after me um, because he was the first kind of walk-on, unsung hero in the self-era at KU. Christian was a walk-on everybody knew, Christian's story, and, you know, Billy Packer called him the greatest walk-on of all time. Like, Christian might as well have been a scholarship. Um, but Steve was kind of behind the scenes, and he just worked his butt off. He's a big reason why Mario and... Um, you know, Jeff and all these other guys were so good. It was because if you could get through Steve Vincent in practice, you could probably get through anybody. He was tenacious. And so Steve had a girlfriend who was a year older than him. And she went to Iowa State before he went to KU. And so people knew his girlfriend at Iowa State. Now it's his wife. They have beautiful children, like great family. But the fans knew who Steve's girlfriend was. Steve's girlfriend was. And so... Jeff and I are out there in our pre-practice rituals talking to fans, you know, playing and, you know, hearing the fans talk to us. And all of a sudden you start hearing people talk about Steve's girlfriend, like implying heavily stuff that was not true, but, you know, college kids are. And so we go back to the locker room, we come out for our next warm up. And so uh, <laughs> we set this routine up where uh, it was like a V shape where Steve uh, and I were spaced apart, throwing passes to Jeff Hawkins. And Jeff stood right in front of the loudest Iowa State fan who was talking about Steve's girlfriend. And we would throw these bullet passes as hard as we could. And Jeff would catch everyone and throw it right back to us in this V-shaped pattern. And at one moment, I threw the pass, and then Steve threw a pass right after I did. And so Jeff had a duck. <laughs> I don't think it was intentional, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't an accident. <laughs> and it knocked the guy back, and he wanted to charge the court, and security had to stop him. But it got him to shut up talking about Steve's girlfriend. And so, like, we, we would have these kind of games of just, like, enjoying the fans, but also realizing, like, hey, we're people, too. And as soon as you start crossing a line with some of the stuff you're saying and you're going to like, you know, get out of there and say racist or mean spirited or misogynistic things like, hey, we're college kids too. <laughs> the, the, the funniest one for me personally 
I never felt attacked. People just make up stupid names for me, but I wasn't important enough to go after. But um, I remember playing Michigan State, and I think I played a little bit that game because I was a fifth-year senior. I think it was at Michigan State, and you know Tom Izzo's team, like big game, right? And I remember warming up, shooting, you know, jumpers from the baseline. I'm close to the fans, and I hear somebody I look out of nowhere go like, "Hey, Ginger, f you, Ginger," just going after me. And I turn around, and it's this little redheaded girl. <laughs> And I just remember thinking, wow, like I've made it. Like I, I, I have some self-loathing redheaded on redheaded violence here. <laughs> um, but, but stuff like that, it's both like a, it's like a rite of passage. Like if you can get past that, you know, you, you generally don't, you know, care. But you, people got to realize like that happens every game. Fans are brutal every game. Um, Darrell Arthur had a famous one. They played a, we played a Baylor. <laughs> they used to go after Danny Manning for some reason. They'd go after him, and they'd go after Darrell Arthur. And Bailey wasn't that good when we played, so you could hear the fans clearly because there wasn't that many people in the arena sometimes. And I remember one person was like, while he was shooting free throws, was like, "Hey, Darrell, remember you had a dream?" Because apparently he was from Dallas, and he did or he chose to go to KU because he had a dream he had instead of going to Baylor because they were recruiting him. And they said, "You have a dream," and the right as he shot the free throw, it was more like a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> and so we just had like experiences like that where we we would talk about it. we'd go back to the locker and be like hey do you hear that thing they said oh yeah they got you good russell like oh brandon they really came at you and so we we would really enjoy it and every now and then danny would kind of kind of weigh in and you know as soon as he entered the argument you know college kids can't kind of keep up with his level of wit but um it's those kind of stories that i think are always kind of fun because you, know, you never see that on tv but it, it happens at every game on the road I mean, Matt, you did a great job of, you know, providing a lot of these, like I said, stories of the fans uh, once you went to these games, stories, you know, in, inside of what the players kind of did during these, during the 08 season, you know, when you first started. Um, but kind of just to kind of just put it, put in everything together, you know, now that you're, what, like, what, maybe 11, 12 years removed from, from playing college basketball, playing for a program like Kansas, and now that you're at your job right now, really helping out communities, uh, and just like we mentioned in the first maybe 10 minutes of this podcast, like spending your time in Kansas, like what taught you the most uh, in your job now or just career now? Sure. I mean, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I think the thing that kind of, hit home for me the most over the years has been like to see the evolution of players. I think um, when people watch games, they really get a one-sided opinion of a player. They might say, oh, he's, he's good or he's bad. Like his performance on a court to the personal characteristics of the human being. And I think that's really unfair in a lot of ways for good and bad. Um, I think I've played with some really talented guys and if they have a bad game and someone's on a message board saying, you know, you suck, go back to Philly, go back to Chicago, go back to Alaska. Like, come on. Like, this is an 18, 19-year-old kid, and you're um, making their lives harder, and you don't need to do that. But, you know, fans are entitled to say whatever they want to say. But I think what I've, I've learned is I, I got out of the bubble. And what I mean by that is I grew up in South Johnson County. That's a bubble. I mean, it's a... Uh, you know, learning through the research I do now because of things like redlining, it was 96% excluded to white families only because of racial covenants that were in the contracts of the deeds of the houses. 
So I grew up in a school that was 96% white. And I went to basketball, play basketball with guys who didn't have the same opportunities that I had because of generational wealth, because of equity, because of exposure to water and lead in the paint and lead in the water systems and neighborhoods where you don't have sidewalks to walk to school on. I walked to school on sidewalks just fine. But the guys I played basketball with at KU, I remember hearing stories from teammates of mine who high school for them was bribing a janitor to go, you know, you know, jack around in a vacant classroom building because the school system was tied to property taxes. And because of white flight, those property taxes drop and the school is dilapidated. And now they don't have enough teachers or classrooms and books and materials to educate the kids. And so for me, I oftentimes see fans get upset about the character or a bad decision made by uh, a, a KU player when they're 18 or 19 years old. And they say, well, you know, they should have made a better choice. And it, it, it struck me relatively recently in the work I do that sometimes guys in the team in every area don't have good choices to begin with. And they come from neighborhoods where there is no good choice. And basketball is the best choice they made. That doesn't change that they're doing what they can to provide for their families. And sometimes they leave early. And yet, it might not be what you want as a fan to see your team have another guy there for one more year, win maybe one more game. I have grown so much to respect and appreciate how difficult it is to build a family. And I say that because basketball, KU basketball, every time we end the huddle was family on three, one, two, three, family. To build a family at a guy from across the country, sometimes across the world, showing up to Lawrence, Kansas of all places, to all of a sudden I'd be expected to perform on national television. And then they go back home at winter break. And sometimes their parents are struggling. Sometimes they're in neighborhoods that haven't been invested in in 30, 50 years. And they got to think about, do I go pro and sign a contract and bring my family out of that? And I think for me, the work I do now, I mean, I'm trying to, there's a buddy of mine who I just reconnected with, and you guys might be interested in reaching out to. you probably really, really good interview. is Tony Temple. Tony Temple Famous Rockers High School uh, Missouri football player. Tony and I played AAU basketball growing up. And he's now doing the same kind of stuff I'm doing. We just talked last week. And invested in opportunities in ways that haven't seen investments in a long time. And trying to find the ways that, at least in the research I do, in the, in the work I do, that is community-led. So that it's not me deciding what's best for somebody else. It's really letting the community decide for itself. And I think that type of um, letting players decide what's best for them, I think that goes for me too, knowing that there are guys who, they got a lot of stuff going on in their lives that people will never see. They'll just see that they missed that three-pointer in the game and they lost. And man, screw that guy. And it's like, no, like these are human beings. And they're dealing with some stuff that you don't know about. And so I think for me, it's coming from a place of just being more compassionate towards those guys, but also recognizing that basketball is not all that matters. Um, sports. I am, uh, there has been more sporting events that I've missed just cause I don't pay attention anymore because I think that, you know, I got, I got work to do. I got something to work on. Um, I got outside the bubble where sports is the only thing that matters. It made me who I am and I'm greatly appreciative of that. But for me, um, I've moved on in a way that, um, I can, you know, sit here and tell stories with you all and I enjoy it. Um, 
but you know, there's, there's kids that I work with who mm. play basketball on a broken basketball court and the ball rolls down into a sewer where there's, you know, toxic sewage on the ball now, and they're going to go back up and play basketball. And that court's not gotten fixed in however many years. And so, like, trying to create neighborhoods and communities where uh, health equity is um, a part of the conversation, and it's led by residents um, so that, you know, basketball is not the only way out. I think that's that's something that um, I, I appreciate the experiences I had at KU, but getting away from KU has been a really good thing for me just to, to see that there's a whole other world that um, guys that come to KU are a part of. And yeah. hopefully, hopefully I can play a small part in the, you know, making it better for the next kids. Did you think when you were, like, I guess, I mean, this is kind of a tricky question to answer, but like when you were going about the days of, you know, the grind of being a walk on, did you ever think of your, did you ever think at the time, like 10 years from now, um, you know, I'm going to make a small impact to my community out, like, a, outside of basketball. <laughs> you know, no. <laughs> Simple answer. I, for me, it was, um, I always, when I was in high school, felt like I was a smart kid with an imposter syndrome as a basketball player. I was, in, I was into art, and I was into school, and I just happened to be tall, so I played basketball. And when I played basketball, I felt like a huge imposter at KU. And I say that, like, I loved the team and I loved the experience, but I don't think I love basketball. Right. And the guys that love basketball, you hear them talk about it. Tyrell Reed loved basketball. Guys in the gym, working out every day. They're guys that love it. And I think for me, um, I love being a part of something and building something and helping um, use my skills to support something. And that's what I do today. It's the same thing. I don't think I love shooting a basketball through a hoop as much, um, and I don't do that now, and that's probably fine. I, people always ask me, do I play pickup ball anymore, and, and the answer is no, because either when I, when I tried to at first after you know getting out of school and kind of coming back to work in Kansas City area, people would invite me to games, like pickup games, and I'd, I'd play, and either I was with people who were really good, and I could tell they were good, and they'd find out who I was, and they go, oh, we're going to come at him because he's a former K champion. We're going to we're going to try to dunk on him. We're going to try to break his ankles. And I'd be like, no, like <laughs> I box out, I set screens, and I foul. That's what I do. Well, don't, please do not try to dunk on me today. I, I got to go to work tomorrow. <laughs> um, but then I play other games, and you know, I play a game with guys at a church league, and I'd be the only one who's ever, you know, probably played organized basketball before. And I throw him a pass, and I'd never see the ball come back. <laughs> so I get frustrated. I'd be like, damn it, like this isn't worth my time. So I, I kind of stopped playing basketball, but it's it's not out of a, a lack of respect for the people that do. It's just for me it, it felt like it was a job. And so when I when I left KU, it was like um I remember going to grad school and meeting friends and, and one of our best experiences ever as a team was when we beat Florida in 2007 you know that was a huge victory for us because i was defeating the back-to-back national champions we beat them as a number one seed we beat them in, in florida or not in florida in, i guess in new york this um, vegas. Was a huge, uh, vegas that's right that's right it's the back back-to-back kind of tournament situation we beat them though and i remember going to grad school my very first year great friends of mine I went to their wedding um but i met them and they were both from the university of florida coming to washington university in st louis which is where i went to after ku my first, my first comment to them was, "Oh, you're from Florida. We beat you guys." And they're like, "What are you talking about? Like, <laughs> who cares? Florida football? Can you beat Florida in football? Like, because that that was what they cared about." And so, for me, like, I had to kind of 
deprogram myself from worrying so much about basketball. But to your question, um, I think the, the, the lessons I've taken away from what Coach Self has taught us is um, I, I have an extraordinarily thick skin um, in the sense that I don't get anxious because there is, I used to tell this to my architecture professors, but there is no uh, project or community effort that I can work on that makes me feel more anxious than having to run out onto a court in front of 16,000 people with a national television audience watching. Like nothing I can do in my job is going to make me feel more anxious than that. So I've like desensitized myself to anxiety, which is a great experience, you know, to have when you're going through a global pandemic and everything going on in the world right now. Like anxiety is something that um, my tolerance went way up because of my experience and, and learning how to persevere through that and learning how to be a team player, not to, you know, herself used to have this media management team come in and talk to the team every year about how to conduct interviews. And it's absolutely true. And I do this all the time. I just do it casually in my work, but they would show these clips of uh, quarterbacks who would win the big game and get interviewed. And one quarterback would always say, uh, they'd say, you know, congratulations on the big game. You know, how'd you do? And the quarterback would say, um, thanks to God for my gifts and thanks to you know, my coaches and my parents, I really did this, I really did that. It's all about, you know, this, this, and this. And then the other quarterback would be interviewed, same kind of setting. You just want a big game. And they go, so, you know, congratulations, quarterback. What do you, you know, have to say to go, you know, I'm really grateful that I have an offensive line that protected me. I'm really grateful that these folks around me care about me, did invest in me. Like, he kind of gave credit back to everybody else. And they'd always, the, the media folks would always ask us afterwards, which quarterback do you want to play for? The one that makes it about them? or about the rest of the team. And I find myself doing that all the time in my work now, where it's like those types of lessons of like supporting the other people, getting through the, the hard spots in life. Like, you know, I remember when we lost the Buck now in Bradley, you turn off the television and like deep, I deprogrammed ESPN from my TV when I was in college. Cause I, I could not bear the shame of seeing that highlights flash up on the screen every week like i saw it for a while getting past all that to realize and this is coach self that i was talking about this is you have to have a short memory and like the sun rises the next day you have to you know take your medicine move on like he had all these kind of coachy colloquialisms but it's it's definitely been great life lessons for me personally that i've taken away with and i still use in my everyday work so did I think I would do what I'm doing now? No. Um, but I think because of what I went through at KU, it made it possible for me to be able to do it and still kind of stay grounded in what I do. Yeah, man. I mean, you did it. I, yeah, I mean, I appreciate, you know, the work that you've put in to the Kansas City community for the past, you know, five or five or so years. You know, the work that you do is very important. I think it's very important to help the community. And I'm glad KU, that you were able to reflect on your career but then also think of the bigger the bigger picture of you know after basketball um sam i I mean that's it for me i don't really have any more questions man you did like a really you did a really damn good job of like talking about you know your 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 current situation as a research assistant and co-founder and then just going on a lot of a lot of really interesting stories about your candace career um Sam, do you have like anything else you want to ask him before we kind of recap, re, re uh, yeah. end this? I just say, Matt, uh, thank you very much for this interview. It, it was so fantastic today. Uh, I learned a lot. I, what I loved about your interview today, it wasn't much about basketball, but learning more about the human side of being a college athlete. You gave us a great glimpse of it. You explained everything perfectly. And, uh, 
it gives me a better perspective to uh, whenever I watch a game now that always remember, even if I get angry about like some play, I remember this is still just a person trying to figure out life and we don't know what some people are going through. And uh, you really touched on that. And, uh, and thank you very much for such a wonderful uh, interview today. Yeah, thank, thank you guys for having me. I know, I know I have a different perspective that just as someone who's sort of seen how that sausage gets made, it's definitely changed my relationship with sports. And I'm, I'm fortunate to have had that sort of privilege. And, you know, I, I, I was a KU fan and I just got to live through some of the best years of KU just by happenstance. Like it, I got lucky. Um, but I'm uh, definitely appreciative of, of the work of many others who kind of made it happen for me so I could enjoy that. So um, I, I, I know what it's like to be a fan. I know what it's like to be on the inside. And I think it's um, it's great the, the work that y'all are doing to kind of tell some of these stories because I think uh, there's a lot of people out there, I think, who have a really interesting relationship with the sports that they played in um, when they come out the other side. Um, some people have, you know, you'll, you'll talk to folks who want nothing more than to live the old battle stories because that's kind of the moment where they were at the peak and the prime and for me, I always had the perspective. I always remember seeing guys like Steph Curry thinking, you know, Steph Curry didn't get his college scholarship. Like, he, he didn't get recruited. He got Davidson, but he didn't get recruited by anybody else. And so, like, he made the best out of where he was at, but it was always, like, the next thing in his career that he, he shined at the next level. And I, I, I realized when I was not going to, um, there's a great story of uh, Danny Manning and Bill Self going around the room in 2008. Um, Coach Self said, hey, Danny, like, who, what's the best pro prospects for each of these guys? And uh, he, he kind of goes one by one. He goes, uh, you know, first round draft pick, lottery pick, second round, overseas, overseas. Uh, and he gets to me and he looks at me and he goes, he just kind of points his finger at me, doesn't say anything. <laughs> you know, E-League, you know, Church League, second round, but he skipped me because – that was that was it. That was the highlight of my career, and I, I think at that moment I realized like I don't want that to be the end of um, my personal story. Like it, it can't be me talking about basketball for the next fifty years of my life. So um, I kind of set myself up to say I, I don't want it to be about KU basketball. Um, it's, it's fun to this day. I have a good friend of mine in Kansas City, Kansas, Broderick Crawford, who every chance he gets in a community meeting puts me on blast. And so somebody will talk about something. He goes, hey, Matt, introduce yourself. And, of course, I talk about my work that I do. And he goes, oh, by the way, Matt is a – and he'll list off the accolades. And it's funny for me because I don't I don't live that life anymore. I, it's, it's on to the next thing. I'm trying to build the next thing to, to you know, same sort of experience being a part of a team. Um, but, yeah, it's a uh, it, it, it's something I'm grateful for, and I'm happy to share those stories. And I think you guys will find a lot more people who have – um, unique perspectives. Um, some of them who will be very, you know, they love their time. Some of them, if they're being honest with y'all, and it might take some time to get to know them before they can be honest, they'll say, man, I, there's a rough patch there for a couple of years, and I hated this. And I just sucked it up to get out of it. And, and that, you see that too. But um, there, there's, a, there's a lot of stories like that. I mean, I was around for five years at KU. That's a long time to be around KU basketball. So I got to see um, both sides of that. And it, I'm grateful that I had the experience I did, but you know, you know, gotta we gotta go back and celebrate every few years what we what we achieved as a team. Yeah, yeah, Matt. Um, I do again, man. We we appreciate you kind of giving your perspective on everything. 
we appreciate you taking the time to talk about you know everything for everything with us and and sharing your thoughts yeah, my pleasure thanks for thanks for reaching out good luck with the rest of your interviews and uh sure there, there's, there's a lot of folks you'll find in the Kansas city area especially who have um good stories sounds good uh thank you very much matt keep doing keep, keep making an impact on the world <laughs> thank you i appreciate it it was nice to talk to you guys